I'm Evan Smith, the CEO of the Texas Tribune, and you're listening to Conversations with the Texas Tribune, a rebroadcast of the Tribune's extended sit-downs with the most interesting, influential, and iconic figures in politics and public policy. This week, can it really be 25 years since George W. Bush entered the race for governor of Texas? The former owner of baseball's Texas Rangers, Bush the Younger, was the son of Bush the Elder, as in George H.W. Bush, the 41st president of the United States. The Bush family's legacy of public service was well-known and well-admired, but the next-generation standard-bearer was supposed to be Brother Jeb in Florida. Ann Richards, the Texas governor on the ballot for re-election in 1994, was a popular Democrat not just at home, but around the country. And yet, W. did what many believed was unlikely, if not impossible, snatching control of the state from the incumbent, and the rest literally is history. To look back on that campaign and on the George W. Bush years in Texas more broadly, my colleague Ross Ramsey, executive editor and co-founder of the Tribune, led a discussion at the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival with four former aides to the eventual chief executive of our state, who would go on to be the 43rd president of the United States. Deputy Policy Director Dan Bartlett, later counselor to the president, and today executive vice president of corporate affairs for Walmart, Media advisor Mark McKinnon, now the co-host of Showtime's The Circus. Campaign strategist Carl Rove, who went on to be deputy White House chief of staff and is now an author and Fox News contributor. And senior advisor Margaret Spellings, later the U.S. Secretary of Education and most recently the president of the University of North Carolina system. Their conversation was recorded live on Friday, September 28, 2018, live at the Driscoll Hotel in Austin. Conversations with the Texas Tribune is presented by Walmart. As the state's largest private employer with nearly 170,000 Texas associates, Walmart was proud to sponsor the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. At the heart of the company's culture is a commitment to serving the needs of its customers and the communities it calls home. Learn more about Walmart's impact in Texas at corporate.walmart.com. And by Encore. Building, operating, and maintaining a grid as big as Texas while offering customers the lowest rates in the state. Visit thewire.encore.com. I want to start with the news today. We'll just go through this very quickly. Because you guys all worked with Brent Kavanaugh um, in some form or fashion in the White House. And I guess the question for you... um, really is, how do you keep this from happening? If you're in the White House, how do you not get the dumpster fire we're watching right now in Washington? Did you, you had the opportunity sometime, surely. Anybody can jump at this. Well, this, this, <laughs> this is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, if a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee received a um, letter worthy of, of uh, further investigation, they would have turned it over to the committee investigators because there is, on on the Senate Judiciary, a very strong history. They have a very strong investigatory staff that operates in a bipartisan fashion. These people are chosen by the majority, chosen by the minority, but they remain there for years. So at minimum, you would have turned it over to them. Or if you felt it was of a a higher level, you would have turned it over to the FBI. So the fact that Dianne Feinstein sat on this for 60 days until after the hearing 
after the nomination and after the and at and just before the hearing is a in fact after the hearing is a sign of something that we haven't seen before. So no White House could prepare for this if you have a member of the Senate who is willing to uh, sabotage this process as badly as she did. Mark. Well, the one I, I interviewed uh, an old friend of mine, John Kennedy from Louisiana, when I was trying to make a decision about what to do when I left here in, uh, after Carl beat me and uh, with, uh, beat us like a drum when I worked for Mark White, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life and somebody, a mentor said, if you think you know anything about politics, go to Louisiana and get your PhD. So I did and I worked for a guy named Buddy Romer and I worked with a guy named John Kennedy who became part of his administration, then treasurer, now U.S. Senator. I, and I interviewed him last week for the circus. And the, 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 the significant point for me, I, I think all of us would tell you that we, we think, we couldn't think more highly of Brett Kavanaugh. And by the way, we think he'd be a great justice. And by the way, I tell my Democratic friends, give me 10 years, we're gonna sit down and you're gonna agree with me uh, that he's gonna be a justice that you, you would be very proud of, very happy that he's there. And by the way, if he goes down, look out what comes after. Because mm -hmm. they're gonna double down. Donald Trump is not gonna put down some mealy-mouthed moderate. It's, it's gonna be hard ideological uh, candidate that will likely be confirmed in the, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, lame duck session. But <clears throat> the one thing I said to Senator Kennedy, he kept saying to me, you know, I just want the facts, I just want the facts. And I said, well, wouldn't an FBI investigation give you more facts? I mean, to me, for Kavanaugh's sake, for his name, for his reputation, there should have been an FBI investigation. They did it in three days for Anita Hill when George H.W. Bush called for it. Uh, uh, triggered that investigation. So the notion that you want the facts but you resist an investigation just never made sense to me and sends all the wrong signals. And now, of course, we have a development today where Jeff Flake has said, yeah, I'll vote yes, but there's got to be an FBI investigation. So now, and now just flip this to you, Dan, because this is kind of what you thought as well, right? I, you know, in these types of situations, you want to control your own destiny. And I think my fear was that that wouldn't be the case here, that you, you're, you're going to, because of the political environment we're operating in, that this was going to be difficult to sustain. Having said that, as Mark said, this is, you know, Carl and I both had the opportunity to help usher two Supreme Court justices, Justice Roberts and Alito. The process you go through inside the White House to prepare for this, as you can probably imagine, is intense. Uh, the amount of rigor that goes into the preparation and the background of the candidate, but also the preparation that goes through it. And having a little bit of a glimpse of what, and so Brett probably is, I probably spent more time in the seven years I was in the White House with him than anybody else. Plus I lived across the street from him. Our wives went to college together. He's a very close friend. And it's, mm -hmm. but I say that with anybody. This, is, this has just been a sad day for our country. This yeah. week has been on both sides to see it dissemble into what we're witnessing today. And I think the biggest fear is that who's gonna put their hat in the ring going forward? when you see a situation like this. And that's hard, it's, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think that there's gonna, you know, we're gonna see a, in the future a dearth of, of well-qualified people wanting to, to step up. In the, in the case for, um, I mean, there was, I think one of the more powerful moments from Brett was when he was reciting his 10-year-old girl, you know, saying a prayer for Dr. Ford. Um, but never my dreams would I thought when we were preparing Alito or Roberts for this that it would escalate to where we are today with this one. It's just you don't think the politics was foreseeable. But as you're planning well, this, well, so you're, putting, you're putting this together in the White House. You're looking at the Senate. You know what the Senate's like. Yeah. You know what that one's like, and that one's like, and that one's like. Don't yeah. you foresee we're walking into a minefield? This is going to yeah, be yeah, yeah. But 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 you assume that people are going to respect the fundamental rules, which are if there is a serious question about the character or conduct of the nominee that there will be a referral to the investigators of the FBI when that information is received, not two months after it's received. 
And I'm and look, 94% of the Republicans voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 74% voted for Stephen Breyer. Then Harry Reid intruded into the process, and we had 50% of Democrats vote for Roberts, and we had 10% of Democrats vote for Alito, who was one of the most. Well, fine. Oh, fine. Please, fine. please, let's let's fine. keep it up here for now. We'll fine. Get questions but, but, later. But, but my point is this. We have been set down a path where both parties are now at each other's throats. That's why I put in my column this week that the Republicans better not ape the procedures and tactics of the Democrats when they're in the minority and the Democrats are in the majority, because it's our country that's being trashed by this. I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. This process stinks. And I wouldn't, I mean, here's a guy, Brett Kavanaugh, whom we all know, who is brilliant, great integrity, unbelievable character, and he chose a life of public service rather than cashing in at some big law firm. And how many people are going to say, okay, great, in the future what I'm going to do is subject myself to this kind of abuse. He has undergone seven FBI investigations over the last 20-some-odd years. And not a single hint of this kind of crap. And now we get here. And if anybody thinks that the three things we've got out on the table now are going to be the only three by the end of the next week when the FBI investigation is completed, you're kidding yourself. More trash is going to be coming out of the, out of the e ether. And by the way, we all went through the FBI, FBI checks to get the security clearances in the White House. They call your high school friends. Yeah. They call your Absolutely. college friends. I they have, call the friends of the friends of the yeah. friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me ask one last question on this and we'll... <laughs> you never came. There's a good reason you never came Martin, here. What you, well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think it's, it's heartbreaking to watch two individuals of high quality that are just having their lives destroyed forever and always will be known in their obituary as, you know, that person. And it's a sad, sad day for our country when people like Brent Kavanaugh They've worked their butts off, 30 years of public service. You know, one of the most uh, stellar colleagues we ever had who is, his life is, is ruined. And I hope he can keep his family together and, and move on no matter what. Um, bad day. Do you all think he's going to get on the Supreme Court? I do. Yeah. At the end I of do. this, do you think he's yeah, Associate do. Justice Kavanaugh? Yes. yes. I do. Yeah, because I think the FBI, uh, it, it was the only kind of hammer holding Things, if they'd been held up. I think if the boat went through today, it was going to go through. I, I think this will just give more ballast for those people because I think that the, the FBI will come go through and it'll be just more he said, said, she said. I don't think it's going to, uh, who knows, we'll see. But, but, but barring, how many more accusations now are going to come flying out now that we've right. got another week? Right. Well, and I think to that point, I think what you have to do is say, and the door shuts on this day, and mm -hmm. that's it. Well, yeah. and Coons, to his credit, sort of said that, limited yeah. in duration and scope, mm -hmm. and he was clear he wanted the current allegations, so we have Ramirez and the 10 gang rape parties to be considered by, by the FBI, but he was, I thought that was a good move on his part, and I'm not going to question his motives. I think out of all of those people on the committee, he is probably one of the ones who is most interested on the Democratic side in, in arriving at something that repairs the reputation of the Judiciary Committee and restores some level of committee to this process. And it's, to me, it's not fair to have the candidate be the one trying to defend the, the committee prerogatives when he's just a victim in the, in the process. Okay, we'll leave that there. We'll go to where we were going to start before all of these hearings. <laughs> you know, this is, um, Texas is now in year 25 of uh, Carl's favorite word, the Republican hegemony. He loves it. <laughs> he's never I used that hegemony. word. Spell hegemony. <laughs> I don't even, I didn't use that word. That's we'll, wait for, word. we'll wait for a minute while everybody Googles it. Uh, the Republicans haven't lost a statewide election in Texas uh, since 1994. This started in some ways before 
the George W. Bush campaign, but it sort of um, really began its run there. Uh, some Democrats won in 94. Nobody won after that except for Republicans. So did you see the state shifting and you just, this was a moment of luck? Yeah, this is for all of you. This was a moment of luck. You had the right candidate. Or would any candidate have made it? Would Clady Williams have made it in 94? Was the state just changing like that? Or was it this candidate? I mean, George Bush was successful as governor and, in my view, as president also because he was a compassionate conservative. Remember that? Remember when Republicans could be for free trade and immigration and family reunification, uh, no child left behind, all of those sorts of things that people could get around together. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, Carl probably disagrees, it was more of a centrist-type vision that was, you know, government if necessary, but not necessarily government. And it was broadly applicable and appealing to the folks. And now we, we've lost that somehow along the way. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I think it's broader than that. I think we've got two different things we're talking about here. We're talking about the Texas and the, and the compassionate conservatism of George W. Bush, who's, who's actually, Karen, is the re, Karen Hughes was the sort of reflector of the phrase, but the, two, the, the phrase actually began with Bush, who talked about, I'm a conservative with a heart. Mm -hmm. And then Myron Magnet, who had talked about compassionate conservatism, sort of came into his orbit. Mm -hmm. But that's different than what's going on nationwide. Nationwide, both political parties are being disrupted, in my opinion. At the time. To now, today. Okay. Today, not back then. Right. Today, we're, we're in a period where for the last sort of 8, 10, 12 years, populism has been flowing through the political system in America as it has through most Western democracies and, ref and making itself felt on the, both the left and the right. right. Um, part of it in reaction to the financial crisis, part of it in response to much other, a lot of other things, but both political parties today are just disrupted from top to bottom nationally. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think I'm a, a, a pretty good uh, surrogate for a lot of what happened in Texas, which is uh, I had not only been a Democrat, but worked in Democratic politics. I worked for Ann Richards. Uh, but I was at a point in my life where I uh, you know, was paying more taxes, growing a little more conservative, and before that time, Texas was a two-party state. You were either a, you know you were either Ralph Yarborough Democrat or you were Lloyd Benson Democrat. There really wasn't yeah, a Republican right, Party. Exactly. Yeah. And so when George W. Bush came to town with this compassionate conservative idea, I'm like, yeah, that's what I am. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I am. And, and he was talking about. I remember talking about immigration and and education and, and issues that were uh, compelling to me. So there were there were a lot of us who crossed the bridge at that time because that was a compelling idea and vision, and we just hadn't had that alternative up until then. And so when he, he came to town, that was, uh, that was why a lot of us crossed the bridge and signed up. Why were the Democrats leaving? Why were, you, why were they leaving where they had been? Well, like I said... You've got to decide you want to change. Well, but if, if Lloyd Benson had showed up in, in, you know, in 1996, he would have been a Republican, right. I think. But yeah, he, this started before Bush. This starts. Yeah. This starts 20 years before Bush, right. mm -hmm. right. and it and it, be, and it begins. It begins with sort of the urbanization of Texas, with in migration from around the country, and then it then along comes Bill Clements, who, who in many ways the 78 victory is an accident, but he takes advantage of it and credentials a lot of people, mm -hmm. and begins to develop alliances first in East Texas and then in sort of Central Texas, and then we have 
Then we have a series of leaders. Phil Graham comes along, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. The state, remember, in, two, in 1980, we forget this. 1980, the New York Times had 10 battleground states. Texas was one of those battleground states. Right. Wow. And the race was considered to be right up for grabs right up till the end. So this was a movement that took place over a number of decades. And Bush, in my opinion, hastened it because the, the kind of uh, both the campaign that he ran uh, and then the governing that he did were enormously attractive, which was why... In, with two Democrats. With, with Democrats. I mean, one of the key things was that he came into office and within a matter of months developed a close working relationship with two very tough, hard to deal with, but very smart Democrats right. who cared about Texas. And when the young, you know, governor, you know, baseball boy from Dallas proved out to both of them that he had the smarts and a vision and a willingness to work hard, that, that helped bring about a lot of ch positive changes for the state that reinforced his message so, as a reform agent. So we had plenty of partisans back in 1990, in 1992, in 1994 leading into this. I was not. I was actually working for the... <laughs> I was in the mainstream media, like Carl. Uh, the, um, why, why wasn't this blowing up? Why were they able to cross over and they're not able to cross over now? I mean, there's, a, there's something different about this period. Well, I mean, look, the climate in which you're operating is different. One of the things that I think has always helped in the state of Texas to a certain extent is the legislature. It is a part-time legislature, so right. you only got 140 days to get things done. There's a... There's an anvil there that works to kind of drive for at least some consensus, of, which you don't see in a professional you know, political environment like you have in Washington. But let's be honest, I mean, the systemic partisanship we see here, particularly on the national stage, is largely driven. I mean, you can talk about redistricting, and when you have a situation where more members of Congress wake up every day worried about a primary opponent than they do a general election opponent, that's fundamental, a fundamental systemic issue that we got to address. And then secondly, the thing about technology, where intuitively you would hope that the proliferation of technology and information would make us a more enlightened public, it's actually made us much more efficient in being uh, to get information to reinforce our views, not question our views. And so uh, we've hypercharged the environment. And so you're not only worrying about your district and about your constituents in your district, there's people maybe in Russia or elsewhere who now can engage in your election. And so I think the, the technology has, has lit this thing on fire. Margaret, you came up through the Texas House and working on education bills and all of that with a lot of Democrats. At what point did you switch? Where did you have the Mark conversion? Switch from, I was a Republican, worked for, I did work for Bill Haley during Bill House Haley, Bill right. 72. Yeah, I worked for a Democrat. I don't know. I, th I think what, what we're, we're missing now is, you know, politics and policy. It has to be about an idea. What are we about? What is our idea today? And we don't have that. You, used to, you said it all the time. Uh, you know, poli good policy makes good politics. And I don't even know what the good policy is anymore or what Republican orthodoxy is or Democrat orthodoxy is. So I think our challenge is to try to define, you know, those, those core first principles that unite us. Right. And I, they're missing. Yeah. So what, what drives politics now? If, if an idea used to drive politics or a policy well, used to drive politics, yeah, well, ideas, what, what do you tell a staff I, I, if you're in a governor's office right now? Yeah, ideas still drive policy and politics, but the, the, to, to Margaret's point, there used to be a consensus broadly within the national parties of what those ideas were, mm -hmm. and there used to be sort of a, you know, but there isn't anymore. Free I mean, what, is, is it possible to be a free trade, pro-business Democrat in a party of Bernie Sanders with, you know, uh, Medicare for all and guaranteed universal job? I mean, 
There are things going on, and is it, it what's a Republican when you've got Bush, Trump, Republicans, and the Freedom Caucus? Yeah. I mean, so this is going to sort itself out, and the party that gets its act together first is more likely to dominate American politics yeah. for some period of time I mean, if it does get its act together. I mean, free trade was one of the issues that drove me toward the Republican Party. Right. I mean, I really hate it. This was when the Democrats the were against NAFTA. And, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so we used to see it in the White House. I mean, I remember the uh, Colombian free trade bill. This is a rounding error from a standpoint of economic, you know, right. impact at all. It, but it was a foreign policy issue because Uribe at that time was somebody who was trying to fight off the Castro brothers and all that. And we were trying to signal that. Not the Texas Castro brothers, the other Castro brothers. <laughs> yeah, no. Actually, clear. And the old, um, they're older cousins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, that was Carl just Rove. Kidding. That was just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But what would happen is we would bring in people for vote, you know, to try to, you know, uh, congressmen to right. convince them, and we bring in free trade Democrats, and they would say, if I vote for this, I'm going to get a primary opponent uh, from from the left, from the labor unions, and so, the, and then the same thing on immigration reform and so, and we bring in uh, Republicans who would tell us privately, we're for this, but if I do this, I'm going to get a primary opponent. And That's of course, just, with gerrymandering, it's got much, much, got yeah. much worse. I mean, there's, well, gerrymandering is not a new concept. No, it's just no, but I mean, put, the power of the microchip has perfected it. Yeah. And there's, and I must admit, I'm, I'm worried. I, I, I don't like this either. But there's no good answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had the commissions in California and Arizona, mm -hmm. and after the first commission redistricting in California, the Democrats went out and announced, "Here's how we jimmied the whole process in order to." get more Democrats than we would have otherwise gotten. If, the, if you use the test of efficiency, the share of the vote that goes to Republican candidates ought to reflect mm -hmm. the share of their congressional uh, uh, strength uh, delegation. Yeah. It, California is gerrymandered against the Republicans. Only one state in the union has been able to pull off the commission and make it work so you have reasonably competitive districts that are not gerrymandered to the advantage of one party or another, and that's Iowa. And I'm convinced it's because they're all pleasant Midwesterners <laughs> who eat lots of corn and go to the state fair regularly and, and get all the bad stuff out of their system every four years in the caucuses so that the rest of the other three years they can be nice and pleasant and fair. But, uh, you know, otherwise it doesn't work. Yeah. Mark, you were in a weird position to see the 90 campaign and the 94 campaign before you joined Bush. Was the difference in those two years politically just the Republican candidate? In, in some ways, you know, a lot of us that were covering that 1990 race, um, you know, Ann Richards won the race, but a lot of us thought Clady Williams lost that race and that, and that the state had, in some ways, already was already pretty purple at that point and was ready for a Republican to win if he hadn't screwed that up. And the evidence of that was Kay Bailey Hutchison and Rick Perry winning. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, to Carl's point, it really started earlier than George W. Bush, and, and uh, Ann Richards really had no right winning that race just on the, the basic sort of uh, demographics of where the state was politically at that time. Because, as you recall, I'm sure, Clady Williams, before he tanked, was how, how much was he up? Double digits, easily. Right. He was up double digits in September. Up double digits, and then he just made some catastrophic errors and clawed his way to the bottom. So, you know, any, any reasonable Republican candidate could have and, sh and would have 
likely won that race. So but inside part- inside the Democratic camps, were was everybody looking at you know after 1992, looking into 1994, and going you know expect a hailstorm? Uh, no, in typical fashion, the Democrats didn't see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I went to I was a young staffer on the Bush campaign then, and I I drove up to Lacey Lakeview, Texas, for her campaign her reelection speech, uh-huh. and it was at her childhood home. I remember it. It was yesterday, and it was one of the flattest political speeches I'd ever heard. And, and there was no energy, and it was kind of it was just interesting right out of the gate. Um, there just wasn't any energy in that campaign, and, 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 that, and people who look back on it say that they really struggled with what, uh, what her message was going to be for re-election. And we, and to the credit of President Bush and, and others here, you know, we came out strong with a really specific um, uh, agenda and okay. stuck to it, yeah. and uh, so it was a, it was a contrasting style campaign. of campaign. Yeah. 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 Was there a part of that campaign where you thought, you know, this is a hill to climb, or was it oh, right, right from the beginning? She was enormously popular. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, th- th- those those two trend lines didn't cross until September, and uh, she was enormously popular. She had the you know she was the the, the delight of the National Democratic Party. Right. We had to prove that he was capable of governing and had a reason that he wanted to, to run other than to revenge for his father's defeat in 1992. Right. And so it had to be a substantive campaign, a campaign of authenticity in which it was all about what he cared, cared about so it would come across. I mean, look, in, in 1994, juvenile justice reform and welfare reform were not at critical issues. You know, education was. Why'd you pick them? Because he cared deeply about him, and because when he talked about him, people would say, he's a guy of substance, and he cares about this. And, it, and particularly when he got to talk about, talking about welfare, it was in an entirely different way than the ordinary Republican talked about it. Remember, we'd had Phil Graham talk about the people in the wagon right. who were pulling the wagon mm-hmm. and, and all the people who were riding in the wagon. Yeah. And Bush talked about welfare in terms of we are losing some of our best and brightest to dependency upon government. We've got, to, we've got to help people become the best that they can be in life uh, and not be merely dependent upon government. But just, to, just to underline that, I, you know, I, 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 Carl gets a lot of credit that he's due for being the architect, but, but that often overshadows the extent to which George W. Bush always had his own vision. Yes. Uh, and, and, and just to give you a, a reflection of that, um, first of all, whenever he sat down with me and our media team, it would always, the conversation would always be, Here's what I think, here's what I believe, here's what I'm going to say, and here's what I'm going to do. Now, you go ahead and figure out how you communicate it. That's your job, not yeah, mine. Yeah. But this is what we're doing. Yeah. And there was never any discussion about, well, are you sure you want to do this yeah. on that? Yeah. And the best example of that was the, uh, the campaign for president on the issue of immigration. And I don't remember who it was that was pushing back on it, but a bunch of people were saying, this is crazy, this is a third rail. You can't, you know, proactively about immigration. We want to reform this in a, you know, in a, in a border-friendly way. And, and he just said, stop. I don't want to hear it again. We're going to do this, and I don't care if it's problematic because I believe in it. I think somebody at that point brought up a poll and said this is bad. And Bush's normal reaction is, if you tell me that this poll's badly and I believe it's the right thing to do, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Exactly. My knees wobbled in that camp, the 94 campaign, in a pasture outside of Houston when he shot the wrong bird. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the killing. That was. Uh, but it was interesting about that. That the scent, you know, he was obviously. Um, I'll never forget because uh, 
it was a, it was actually the local Fox affiliate. Uh, they took back the studio, and somebody walked by and was looking at the B-roll, and they said, "I forget. He killed a Kildee, or yeah, he was supposed it. to kill." You would have thought it was a bald or, eagle yeah. by the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he shot America. Yeah, 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 and and the funny part about that was so he was already. We were already back at the at the. Um, so this was the day that and those who were in the legislature, you know, back then there was. Uh, the day that the new state criminal justice system, state jail felonies were going into effect, and we were doing a law enforcement event. So we had a bunch of prosecutors and sheriff guys are out there. This was going to be a great photo op. We were going to do the hunt in the morning. It was Labor Day, you know, after the first, uh, first day of hunting. And then we are going to go take a shower, and he was going to get up to Dallas, and he was going to do another event up in Dallas. So we were at the hotel when he got the call and saying, we think he shot the wrong bird. So I had the luxury of going in and telling him that he had shot the wrong bird. And it was a funny story about it. So he had to go, and he was, you know, everybody's freaking out about it. And they're trying to come up. He was coming up with a quip. But there was, like, a game warden out there. So he gives me a check and says, Penny, go take care of this. So I was, all right. So I stay behind. I go out to the it's field. It's like South Texas politics, right? Just go <laughs> pick this guy up. So I go out. The, so I'm out there, and there's this, this poor guy. He was, like, crushed. He's like, I didn't know what to do. Because the guy out there knew, because he went out and picked the bird, and he hit it. Yeah, so I'm sure they all went. <laughs> yeah, so he was, like, he was freaking out. So at this point, there's, like, the game, and the game warden's like, we've never had anybody get captured on camera by five cameras that they've shot the wrong bird. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know what, you know, what the fine. He's like, we're going to go downtown. I'm like, oh my gosh. So we all drive down to downtown Houston to the parks uh, and wildlife department. We go in there and they're all looking at me going, well, what are we going to do? He's like, we've never had any fine of this. And I was like, Maybe, you know, I said, you know, there's got to be a range. He says, what about $1,000? I said, whoa, $1,000? <laughs> and then he said, well, I don't know. So I literally said, isn't this like, you know, if you go over the limit, isn't it like a $100 with $25 in court fees or something like that? And they go, that sounds great. <laughs> I said, I filled out the check for $125, and they all wanted to take a picture. We all took a picture with the richest oh, check. Yeah. But what was interesting about that was that um, – the sentiment, particularly because, you know, the battleground was East Texas. Right. And it humanized Bush in a way because the, 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 I was going to tell you, the irony was it was that she was on her own hunt up in Northeast Texas where I grew up on an exact land, uh, Ted Line land, where I used to hunt. And we'd never shot a bird in, in years on opening day. And they had gotten bored there. The media did because there weren't any birds. She hadn't shot the gun. So they coaxed her into shooting the gun in the air so they could get B-roll of her shooting in the air. Right. So you had this situation where Bush was able to be self-deprecating, made fun of me, said, I'm glad I wasn't deer hunting or I might have shot a cow. <laughs> he just kind of like ran with it. And she was like, poor George, you know, he borrowed a gun, he shot the wrong boy. And she was just kind of shooting the gun in the air. And the feedback we were getting from East Texas was, you know, hey, he's human. He's like us now. It, it, in a way, it really yeah. humanized People him. People would go and come up to him in the airport for the next several weeks and say, I shot the same kill. Yeah, <laughs> now, what Bartlett doesn't know is Bartlett is down in Houston and he's on his way and we're keeping track of this. And, and, and he's got, we know he's got one check signed by Bush, amount to be filled in. And, and the word comes that he has now been taken to the, to the uh, game wardens, uh, to the Department of um, Parks and Wildlife office down there with, in, in custody of the game wardens. And I can't remember who says, who said it, but they said, are we going to have to bail Bartlett out? <laughs> so he said he did the four things so many times, just, yeah. you know, torts, education, welfare, juvenile justice reform. <laughs> Ann Richards had this great line. If you ask the son of a bitch what time it is, he'll tell you it's time for tort reform. Yeah. Um, Which is why you what's, Perfect. What's, <laughs> the, yeah, what's, what's the legacy? We've talked about, the, you know, how the politics have gone, but the, what's the legacy of the policy shop? I mean, you know, Texas had a real push under, you know, actually pre-Bush and then through Bush um, 
from the legislature and the governor's office for public education, and that's faded. Absolutely. And a real policy agenda. I mean, the book that we had in the presidential campaign was this thick. Adam, you remember, and we had, you know, a series of about eight speeches that were given all over the country. It, they had, uh, you know, policy proposals and budgets and just the requirements of what uh, what we had in the presidential campaign that is so different from now it really <laughs> is, is, is pretty well, different. Where, where did you see, I mean, you put this together and you hope that this is going to be state policy for a little bit. Um, when did you see it start to to fade? I mean, was it immediately or did it just, you know, I know you guys were off busy in Washington, but you set this foundation stone in Texas and you do, we're going to do this well, with education. It's, it's we're kind of gradual, I would say, that kind of thing. You know, people have their own agendas. Obviously, Governor Perry did, and he, you know, education was such a huge, huge thing for Bush, less so for Perry. And, you know, the boulder rolled down the hill a little bit. The whole, you know, climate for education reform has changed nationally. We're now in the era of local control. We were in an era that, you know, you could have standards. some standards and accountability and kind of a national imperative around it, but... Right. Anyway, one thing I wanted to mention to add on to the gubernatorial stuff and, you know, on this Lacey Lakeview speech, we had an organizational structure just that was extraordinary. We had 254 county chairmen and giant rallies all over the state and just the human organization that uh, was around a good policy shop and a great media shop. And the strategy to... And a strategy. To uh, being a new a new candidate, right. that he got you know yeah. got his training and, and wheels off out of the Republican Party. I love all this stuff. And about, we built the Republican Party. I love this stuff about Beto going to all 254 counties and making it a big deal. Shit, we were doing that in 1993 yeah. and 1994. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Should have told well, somebody. I, I, I've got <laughs> yeah. to swear a little bit more in order to be more Beto-like. So I yeah. got the F word is coming here in just a minute. <laughs> but are you running for something? Yeah, the border. Carl, when did you and Bush? Um, or Bush and anybody else start talking about the presidency. How early was that? 96 convention in um, San Diego. San Diego. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't before 94. It wasn't. I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. No. And then. If you if you look back from 96, you can sort of see at the beginning of 95, mm -hmm. the meeting of the of the at the the first meeting of the Republican Governors Association. There's a huge class yeah. of of new governors who come in in 1994, right. and there's some old bulls. Right. There's, you know, Engler of Michigan is in office Tommy and Thompson. Tommy, Tommy Thompson, Thompson in Wisconsin, uh, the governor of... Uh, uh, Pataki. Of, well, Pata no, no, Pataki comes in with us. Okay. And yeah. so, so, but anyway, they're, 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 the old bulls are in the front of the class and the classroom and in the back of the classroom are all the new kids shooting spitwads at each other and cracking jokes. And there was a camaraderie there and a sense of reform-mindedness. These were, these were people who were intent upon whether their state was a little state or a big state. They were intent upon trying to do new things to make their states better. And, the, and you could just sort of see in retrospect in 96 that, that they were clicking and the sort of natural leader who was emerging among their group was Bush. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, the other thing that happens, because uh, I, I saw it happen with Mark White and I saw it happen with Ann Richards, is if you're the governor of Texas, as soon as you're elected, people start talking about you running for president. I mean, it's just a big state. Yeah. And... You know, I mean, they, it's not just Texas. It's usually, I mean, but if you're a governor of California, New York, or Florida, they, just that chatter starts pretty quickly. Right. But right. Ray, Ray Sullivan, I think, was there in 96 at the convention. And, I mean, literally people were, we were just nominated was, Bob Dole. And people were coming up to Bush saying, God, I hope you run in 2000. Mm -hmm. And it was like, well, wait a minute. Well, aren't, well, aren't we supposed to be thinking about that's the re-election for Bob Dole? Mm -hmm. But literally at the convention, people were literally, you know, 
Here's my nine. business card. Yeah. You know, if in 2000, remember me for 2000. Yeah. And then 98 becomes a full dress rehearsal, his reelection campaign for governor. Well, I do, so, Gary so Morrow is using the DNC playbook to start the, the national attacks. Right. They were coordinating right. all that, and it was on. So, but there was some place in here where those people were talking to him and saying, you know, hey, do you think you ought to, you know, sure would be great if you did this. There was some place where he looked in the mirror and went, you know, you ought to do this. When was that? Is that right there? Or Well... Let's just say Bush's attitude in 96, 97, and through much of 98 is bemused tolerance. Yeah. Right. His attitude is, I'm the governor of Texas, and I got plenty to do, particularly in 97 with the legislative session. Mm -hmm. But it's like, okay, I've not made up my mind, but, but I recognize that if I do want to do this, things need to be done. But don't, don't count on me doing it. So it was like... I, I so actually, we organized that way. I moved, I moved out of the I went back to the committee, and yeah. we just that's when we started organizing to, to, so he yeah. could make a decision. Yeah. Right. I, I went back to the secret papers. <laughs> but like in May of 19... So you went to your garage. <laughs> I'm not saying where they're located. <laughs> Undisclosed location. Cheney visits there frequently. Yeah. <laughs> but like in May of 97... Al Hubbard comes down. Al Hubbard is from Jackson, Tennessee, Harvard business classmate of Bush, goes to Indiana, very successful in the private equity world, does something that people in business don't do, and that has become very active in practical politics. He's the former Indiana Republican chairman and hugely involved in education reform and deeply involved in, in center-right think tanks, American Enterprise Institute and so forth. But he and his wife come down and spend the night with Bush and he's thinking about, if you want to run for president, here are some smart people. And he says to Bush, there's this very interesting guy named Larry Lindsay that you ought to talk to. And Bush had already read Larry Lindsay's book. I'd given him his book. And he said, I want to meet that guy. So this, this, this you know, in July, Myron Magnet comes down. Bush has read uh, Myron Magnet's book on compassionate, <clears throat> on, on basically the role of, of intermediate institutions in solving the problems of, of, of dependency and welfare and poverty. So uh, throughout 97 and 98, Bush is beginning to sort of collect the intellectual capital uh, for all of this. And there are, two, there are sort of two events that, that uh, really kick it, kick it off and uh, kick it to another level. One is in April of, I think it's April of 98, he goes to California and George Schultz has heard about him. Former Secretary of State. Former Secretary of State, very close to Reagan, deeply involved in the Hoover Institution. Right. And he calls up and says, I hear he's going to come out here. We, we were, we were going to go sort of build a fundraising network around the country, both so that we had to raise less money out of Texas for the reelect, and also so that we sort of touched and created a network around the country. And Schultz called up and said, I want, I want, I want to host Bush in my house. Can he spend an afternoon? And I'll pull together some interesting people uh, and in there was two economists, or three economists, John Taylor, John Kogan, and, and uh, Michael Boskin, all of whom had been big luminaries. Marty Feldstein, I think, was there. Yeah. And then there was this young Russia expert at Stanford named Condoleezza Rice, pretty good piano player, apparently, but she was there. And Bush goes, shows up in Schultz's dining room, or living room, and the day is spent mostly on a conversation about anything they want to talk about including at one point there's this spontaneous discussion about the International Monetary Fund and reform of it. And so they don't know what to make of Bush, but they have a little agenda that they want to talk about. And he's a sop for information. And he's asking really good questions. 
And at the meeting of this, at the end of the meeting, we're leaving after like five or six hours, and Schultz says to me, that young man can be president. And he goes to say goodbye to his guests, and he comes back to me and said, Ronald Reagan's campaign for presidency began in the same living room. The next day, Bush goes to give a speech to the Lincoln Club of Northern California down in Monterey Bay, and somebody asked him a question about, of all things, the International Monetary Fund. And Bush lays out in, in detail the arguments for reforming it Lucky or leaving counts, it as right? it is. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, having absorbed all this information, and then explains why he's in favor of this kind of reform, but not that kind of reform. And two of the economists that were Kogan and Boskin are sitting in the room listening to the, their new student, and immediately reporting back to Schultz, that guy paid attention. <laughs> and, but that was a, I mean, from then on, there was a sort of a, among the sort of conservative um, intellectual types, there was, a, this guy is real, and he's serious about it. And, and, and we, we, we stopped having to, look for opportunities and start, had to regulate the people coming to town. Exactly, and we curated groups of policy experts that, that we assembled that you know wanted to be with the it guy, right. and uh, they came to town and helped us flesh out a national political agenda. Rolling college, so kind of. How, yeah, yeah. how did you meet him? What's your first encounter with George Bush? Uh, through Carl, uh, when he w uh, owned the Texas Rangers and uh, you introduced us, and he was just, it was when he was actually thinking about running for governor the first time, and he wanted to learn a lot about, you know, public education, because if you're a governor of state, you are an education governor, and it was all in the throes of the school finance wars and so forth, and uh, he was a very good student, as you say. I mean, just, you know, hungry for information, and... So the uh, first time before 94, before, there was a lot of talk 90, in 90. Before, 90, 90. Yeah, right. In 90, 90. In 90, yeah. But which was not the right time for him to run. No. His father was president. So Margaret's sort of passing over this. So Margaret is the big dog on school finance, right. represents the school boards. And I mean, she is a huge player in Austin. And Bush says, I want her in my campaign. So Margaret, who's making gobs of money, has huge influence, big stroke. We say, Margaret, we want you to organize 254 counties and be the political director of the campaign. And she says, well, this ought to be fun, and did a hell of a job. But it was like Bush had this sense, I want her close, and she's capable of doing anything in the campaign, but I don't want her just stuck being a nerd neck. Uh, because Vance was that, yeah. yeah. And I, I will say this, I, I love George Bush, you know, everything about him, worked for him for 25 years, probably the longest serving staff member. But I did make sure that my boss reserved my job <laughs> just in case. Well, was your first impression, you know, you know, I was in the press corps, and the first impression the press corps had of George Bush was, this guy can't get out of a sentence. And you took him into all the B markets um, at the beginning of that campaign and got him better at public speaking. But the public speaking, maybe he was driving the car. The public speaking was not great. Come on. Well, 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 let me tell you a story. So... I mean, did you did you think he was a formidable candidate the instant you saw him, or did you kind of go? Ugh. Well, here's here's a telling story. Uh, I, I can't remember. I, I don't think I mentioned this in this forum. I was talking to someone earlier today. But uh, when I got when when George W. Bush asked me to do the, the advertising for the presidential campaign, I was at first really excited, and then I was petrified. It was just a huge job. I'd never done anything on that scale before. I didn't know if I was up to it. And so I went back and I studied presidential advertising from the advent and talk, went around and talked to all the people who were still alive who'd done it, learned as much as I could. And the one thing that I 
notice was that it is, it is not static, it's constantly evolving and you, you do something for a cycle or two and kind of voters get used to it, kind of like a, a virus and then, you know, and then, uh, then it evolves. And, and the one thing that I had noticed kind of in, right into our era that was happening then and certainly is a, is, a, is a powerful now ingredient to successful communication. I mean, nobody believes political, uh, I mean, no, people are very skeptical about any political communication, especially political ads. Because they know we have a First Amendment. You can say whatever you want. You don't have to tell the truth. Often don't. And people know that. So there's a real, there's a real, uh, so our challenge is how do we break through that? Well, in our era, it was do something, be authentic. You know, do something that says to people, this is real. And the, the, the so it, I did very few ads with George W. Bush that were scripted. Uh, I mean, he wasn't good at it. It looked like he was reading a script. And uh, but the good thing was that when he wasn't reading a script, he sounded really human. And so I would just get these human moments of him on the trail, get a little piece of you know, him in a conversation or whatever it might be. But when, and during a presidential campaign, you have three opportunities uh, where you really can move the dial. One is your announcement speech. Two is the convention speech and your choice of the VP in the debates. But the announcement speech is, is really an opportunity because you pretty much get to be unfiltered. The press kind of gives you a free ride. So, okay, why are you running? So uh, a, a lot of thought goes into that. And then, but the convention speech is also the kind of the time when you've been talking to a base, but the rest of America doesn't know you, and so you give your speech, and that's a big deal. But there is a, there is a conventional thing we do at those speeches, which is we introduce the candidate with a biofilm that, that, again, you get to sort of tell your story to a lot of America that hasn't seen it. That was my job. So I went to the ranch and, and filmed a lot with, in Crawford with, with George and Laura Bush, and there was one little scene where I was asking them about their, the, their daughters, and he, he started talking about when they were born, and he talked about being in the, being in the uh, delivery room or what have you, and he just completely mangled what he was trying to say. And we all laughed, and it was funny, they laughed. So I went back and said, okay, let's do it again. We did it like two, more, two or three more times. We got it perfect. We go into the editing room to edit the film, and we get to that part, and there's a mistake. I said, you know, we all laughed in the editing room. They said, okay, get rid of that, put in the good one. And then like five minutes later, I was like, wait a minute, go back. Let's put in the bad version. And now I go over to the campaign later, and these guys are like, what, are you crazy, McKinnon? You're intentionally putting in a mistake? And I said, yeah, they said, why? And I said, because it's authentic. People can relate to this. It, it, it's, it's funny, it's vulnerable, it's human. People can relate to it. And by the way, Let's just admit the obvious and lower the bar of expectations on the oratorical skills of our guy. <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite lines, this was, I can't remember what year it was, but we had just done a national, uh, a primetime press conference in the East Room, and he had one of those moments. I mean, it was 30 seconds of dead air time, kind of, and I don't remember when we went out there, and, he, and I, I just kind of looked at him like, I kind of got stuck in a rhetorical cul-de-sac. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember. Um, and so there were a lot of cul-de-sacs along the way. You know, but the, what we did learn, though, you, you know, you had to learn if, is when you put them in the right environment and you didn't try to overly script them and those things. And there were times when, like, I'll never forget, obviously, September 20th when he gave the speech before Congress, which I think was one of the best speeches he ever gave. And he got in the car, I was talking on the way, and he was, he says, I've never been more comfortable in my life giving a speech. And it was because he just owned it. He owned the substance of it. I remember because he was meeting with Tony Blair beforehand, and Tony Blair was freaked out that he wasn't prepping for a speech. This was like two hours before the speech. He's like, I got this. I know what I want to say. And so it was just another lesson that, you know, 
forcing any po politician, a CEO, or things to an environment that they're not comfortable with talking about things they're not, they don't believe in is never going to work. And it clearly didn't work with Bush. But the other challenge was, is I would always have this happen. Somebody would, we'd have some meeting in the Roosevelt Room, or in the, and somebody would spend behind closed doors an hour with George W. Bush, and they come in and he's like, well, if America saw that George W. Bush, y'all would have a 60% approval rating. And we're like, yeah, but he, he made like 15 world headlines in that meeting. He's like, because when he's letting it rip, he's letting it rip. But when you have to have a governor on as you're speaking, because every word matters, that's a very, well, at least very... It used to. It used to. Yeah, I guess yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, you know, we had a lot of, you know, things. And so if you're always having to kind of you know, be three sentences ahead of yourself and what you're think, you know, thinking as you're right. talking. Yeah. It's, not, it's not easy. Right. I, I, a couple things I want to add, and this dates back to the gubernatorial days. When Bush went into Spanish and kind of riffed into Spanish to spontaneously, I mean, people ate it up. And it was authentic, as you say. Spanish probably in the greatest ever, but it was, it was real and uh, obviously connected the with... Spanish was kind of about as good as his English. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, Good point. You know, though, there was... See, that's perfect defensive language. It's like, we're going <laughs> to yeah. lay this Why groundwork. The media guy. At the beginning, when we went around to the small counties in 93, right. part of that was because nobody in the big counties was going to pay attention to us at that point. Mm -hmm. So if Bush, having the last name, went to Seminole or Jacksonville, it was a big deal. So he would get a crowd that was... And all respectful. the Seminole media was there to cover it. Exactly. Right, right, exactly. Send it back to Dallas. But right. the other thing was, this, right. this gave him a chance to play around with what he wanted to say. He knew what he, right from the beginning, there were three things, education, juvenile justice, welfare. The fourth one was the only additive that, that, that came from the outside. The other three were his, right from the beginning. But this gave him a chance to go out there and in 93 and 94, figure out what, how he wanted to talk about these things. Because look, I know he plays the good old boy from Midland, but he was a Yale history major and a Harvard MBA. Right. And he is a competitor. So he would go out there and talk about things and read the crowd and revise. And this was a constant thing of revision. It's also recognition that when you're running for governor of a big state like Texas, you may have run for the congressional district in West Texas, but it's a bigger stage. And this was a lesson that he also learned on the presidential uh, level when he ran for president. Sure, he'd been the governor of the second most populous state in the union, but he very quickly recognized there was a bigger stage with bigger necessities and bigger requirements. I know the politics have changed dramatically since this all started, but if you had a candidate come to you now, any of you, or a potential candidate with these kinds of qualifications, let's just say equals equals, right? Has a good family name or, you know, whatever. Um, do they run now? Can you run these plays anymore? Or do you have to reinvent politics every time you run a campaign? Can you, if a George Bush in the state, you found him whenever it was, 87, 88, whenever you guys met. Uh, 19, maybe, 1973. Okay. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, you've got the same relationship. Now's the time. Yeah. Can you run this kind of a play anymore? And does that kind of a guy run anymore? It's very different. I mean, it's very different. Um, and, and after this, we're going to line up at the mic. So if you want to head over there, go well, ahead. Well, I mean, ask, ask Jeb Bush. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I mean, now, now is not an environment where you want to be a legacy or you know, a candidate who comes from a you know, long-established uh, lineage of politicians. Now, that could, that could flip completely in a cycle or two, and people say, we really want experienced people who have right. you know, a record of public it service. Right. Yeah, uh, every election is a reaction to some degree to the previous election. And that's why Bush saying, I will restore dignity and honor to the White House was in a reaction to what the previous four years had been about. Mm -hmm. right. So, uh, you know, Jeb is a, 
if Jeb had started off not being the $100 million man, which is what the first note was, I'm gonna, his campaign let out that they were going to raise $100 million. If he had been, I'm the guy who went to Tallahassee, Florida, and turned state government upside down as a reform-minded disruptor, he might have had a better chance. But it, yes, there, is there a chance for, a, if you define a Bush-like candidate as somebody who, we, we had, our, our, our strategy was <clears throat> M-E-R-S, money, establishment slash endorsements, uh, substance, and uh, relevance. And, you know, y yeah, you could, you, could pull, you could pull a similar act under the right circumstances. Next time around, I suspect we're going to be, both parties would be smart if they got a, a unifier. Mm -hmm. if, they, if Trump runs again, the Democrats, if they nominate a Joe Biden-like, you know, I'm in, we're all in this together, they got a better shot of winning because in part it'll be a reaction to the 2016 election and things that happened after. Mm -hmm. What was 94 our reaction to? 94 was a reaction to looking at, at 91, 92, and 93 and realizing the state had big problems about which nothing much was being done. And one of the things that was happening was people had no idea. I mean, they liked her. Mm -hmm. She was highly entertaining. They liked her on Election Day when they voted against her. Yeah, she had a 62% personal approval rating on Election Day. If we'd run the customary take a two-by-four and beat in the head of your opponent as being a liberal, we would have lost. But if we ran past her by saying, this is about the future of Texas, and I want to do something to educate every child and make certain that every child reads, I want to save a, 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 a generation from dependency on government. I want to save a generation from being sucked into the criminal justice system. I want to stop the junk lawsuits that are costing us jobs. As long as those four things came in people's minds at the end of the campaign, it'd be, you know, Aunt Anne, Ann, whom we love having at the, at the, the, the picnic every summer because she's so outrageous versus the guy who actually wants to get things done for the future of Texas. Okay, uh, we've got a mic open back here. No speeches, just questions. <coughs> Go. Good afternoon, thank you. I'd like to revisit, is it a microphone? Okay. Yeah. I'd like to revisit Judge Kavanaugh, and it's a multi-part question. Is it plausible that the man you all knew in his late 20s, 30s, 40s, and at this age is upstanding, great, everything, you've never seen anything untoward, but maybe in the days of high school and college, fueled by alcohol and a bro culture, that he was a different man. And then the second is, so it can be the same person. If some of this stuff did happen, like with, with Dr. Ford or something, do you think that means he should not be um, uh, elected or um, rewarded to the Supreme Court? Not whether he would, should he? Are those things that happen in college and high school that maybe had been way too common and probably is still too common now, is that a disqualifier? Uh, the first question, um, and y'all can take the second one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, oftentimes, the, the character of a person reveals itself throughout their life, and, and, and you truly see the character of somebody during times of high stress which we all experience, we saw, and I, and I think at your core, you're the, you, you are who you are, whether it's in high school, yes, you make more juvenile, you make better decisions, hopefully when you're older than when you're younger, but your core character presumably is the same. And I've gotten to know quite a few of Brett's childhood friends as well, who, who also witnessed him during that time period. 
And, and also, you see, I've, I've, got, I've had several beers with Brett over the years on multiple occasions in our neighborhood on my front porch. And you would see a person, and he was, he's never, I've never seen the man ever out of control. Um, and so that's why it just doesn't seem to me that all of a sudden that this is a, a different person that kind of flipped a switch and was, you know, so that, to me, that, that this binary kind of, he was this then, and then he's, he's a, a reformed person. I, I, don't, I don't see that based on my personal experience with him as an adult, but also the people who I talked to and got to know who knew him back then as well. Who wants to say? I, mean, I, I mean, I think that's a question for psychologists, and I think the answer to the second question is it depends. I mean, what is the you know, predominant uh, view of how severe or not the, the particular event was? Is it a disqualifier? And we might all have different opinions about uh, what is and what isn't. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm with Dan on the question of is somebody some way consistently at the age of 16 and 17 and then suddenly different for the next 30-some-odd years? And I, I bet you, you know, I mean, what we do know about Harvey Weinstein and others is that it's a, it is a practice, an attitude, and conduct that exists for decades. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, look, we're not neutral. Yeah. We worked with this guy. Yeah. We saw this guy up close. We saw this guy in moments of stress and pressure like you cannot imagine. We, we saw him dealing with difficult issues and, in diffi and, and with he lots of big... He had to deal with us. Yeah, he had to deal with <laughs> us. I mean, he, this was one of the most accomplished, kind, diplomatic, thoughtful, insightful, gentle, gentle kind people you could ever hope to be around. And, um, and look, because we were also very protect. His wife worked for President Bush. His wife, Ashley, was and her assistant. And she was all of our favorite as well. So we weren't going to let anybody yeah. date uh, Ashley Estes from... Abilene, Texas. Yeah, so the, you know the, we were the doe-eyed Ashley, as my wife calls her, and, and yeah. everybody, everybody, everybody was, as you say, highly protective. And you know, look, this is not a pleasant place. I mean, I, I, I you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, where are all these people now? Where were they 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Right. Can I just ask? Yeah. No, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I don't know the. I don't know the priest. I don't know the priest. And if I were, it, it, I'm, a, I'm an Episcopalian, so I'm not allowed to have strong emotions about things religious. But <laughs> if, if I were a Catholic, I, I have, I have Catholic friends who are deeply questioning their faith because of this. No, I, I'm not. I'm not blind to the fact that these things happen in our world. I'm just saying that if. Let's, I, I, know, let's, I know, but I know, but but again, there. Do you think we, if we've got a priest who prays upon one child, that they only pray on one child over a sixty-year lifetime? No. The problem with this is that they pray on them time and time and time again. Let's get another question. Yes, sir. Uh, this question is mostly for Roe, but if anyone else would like to, um, no, that's fine. Comment, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> Dan will take it. Um, so Bush's re-election in 04 was the last presidential election in which a Republican candidate won the popular vote. And of course that's completely irrelevant to winning the presidency, I understand that. But what does a Republican candidate need to do to convince a, a plurality of the electorate to back them? Yeah, a majority of the electorate? Or plurality? No, plurality, just, just okay. to get the most votes. Well... First of all, this, this is 
This, we are in an unusual period. Uh, we've now had in the last four presidential elections, no, five, excuse me, the last five presidential elections, two of the five who've been elected uh, won a minority of the popular vote and a majority of the Electoral College. Last time that happened was the Gilded Age when politics was even worse than it is today. But look, the Republican Party has got to get itself right with the changing demography of America by demonstrating that it's open to that diversity. We need more Will Hurds, and we need more Alberto Gonzalez's, and we need more you know, uh, Mia Loves, and we need a lot more people who, when they run for office, recognize that there is a center-right majority in this country for limited government and personal responsibility, but it's got to be it has got to be uh, argued by candidates in a way that, it, that draws people into the party. Uniters win more often than dividers. Mm -hmm. And we are at a point in our politics where both parties are put a bigger emphasis on dividing than they have on uniting. And, and it wasn't just Donald Trump. I mean, deplorables is a mindset that demonstrates that you think part of the electorate is worth being washed out to sea. And there's a great book I strongly recommend it to you. It talks about one of the critical elections in American history. It's brilliant, insightful. It's got sex, violence, backstabbing, betrayal. I think I did a hell of a job with it. Were you the only guy? <laughs> were you the only guy who blurbed it? Yeah. <laughs> Called no, no. Charles Krauthammer blurbed it. Doris Kearns Goodwin blurbed it. H.W. Brands blurbed it. But it's a it's about an election in which the Republicans should not have won and did by being a uniter and a uniter from start to finish. And the Democrat was the divider. And what happened was it, cha it changed the politics of a broken era, the Gilded Age, and ushered in a 36-year period of Republican dominance. And something's going to happen like that in the future. Somebody's going to find, Democrat or Republican, find the way to unite the country. And if they're successful as president, then it will change the politics of America. We're going to have to call it there. We're out of time. Margaret Spellings, Dan yeah, Bartlett, Carl Rove, Martin <laughs> You've been listening to a conversation about the Governor George W. Bush years in Texas, recorded live at the Driscoll Hotel in Austin. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with the Texas Tribune. Visit texastribune.org slash events for more information about our public interviews. And if you like what you heard on this podcast, please be sure to rate us as awesome on your favorite platform and tell your friends about us. Until next time, this is Evan Smith. <laughs>